Welcome to What the Heck with Lizzie Beck. I am your host, Lizzie Beck. Today's guest is joining me via Zoom all the way from Brooklyn, New York. He received his construction management degree with a minor in architectural engineering from Indiana State University, where he also thrived as a track and field scholarship athlete. He has worked on various projects since graduating, including building Terminal F at ATL, and the Barclays Center in Brooklyn, and he is now Senior Project Manager at JLL. Sports have always been his life, and you may see him a lot out on the flag football field. His old team, the Brooklyn Bullies, holds the record for most second place finishes in their old Dog Brooklyn League, which honestly is very disappointing. Second place, come on. Uh, he started his own team, Airmail, who won three championships before the league shut down. Yes, he does take intramural sports too seriously as a working professional. To some, he's known as Silky. To others, he's known as the world's best professional intramural player. Uh, and by others, I'm sure he means his mother. He is my very good friend, Vincent Mason. Vincent, welcome to the show. Thank you for that wonderful intro. I, I appreciate it. It's a great bio. Uh, but my uh, peers wrote that, by the way, not me. Mm, mm, yeah. <laughs> it's a really good bio. I think Miss Bonita would be very proud, very proud of her son. <laughs> she probably would. Shout out to Miss Bonita. Tell her Amy says hi. I, I will. I definitely will. <laughs> she'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, so, Vincent, I'm very excited to have you on the show today in our Black Lives Matter series. Uh, I wanted to kind of talk to you a little bit about your perspective and your experience being a black man in America. Um, as I told you before, it's an open space. And if there's anything you're not comfortable answering, we won't have to answer it. And you know, I just want you to feel free to talk and share your perspective and whatever you feel like saying, go ahead and say, and that's it. Gotcha. Uh, but the first thing I do like to do is I want you to share with my listeners how do we know each other how did we how did we come to know each other so um i believe i actually met lizzie through her sister katie katie had i met katie randomly at like one of my birthday parties like my last like big party that i threw and then we had a football tournament the very next day when which i was hung over for but i still performed very well <laughs> Um, you know, they tell you to drink a glass of water for every shot or every beverage that you drink. I was having my glasses of water plus coconut water the next morning. Anyway. Very responsible. Yes. Very responsible. <laughs> Katie was on my team and then we, um, the Pink Panthers at that time, I think that I was playing with for like a couple of years. And then Katie started playing. When I realized she lived in Brooklyn, I asked her to come play with us for the Brooklyn Bullies, for my Bullies team. And Katie being tall, she told me she also had a sister named Lizzie. And I was like, what? You have a sister? <laughs> like, bring her too. <laughs> so then we had Katie and Lizzie on our flag football team. And I think that's actually when I just, I think that's the first time I truly met you was on the flag football team, on the flag football field. And it could have been 
before then, like at one of Katie's barbecues or something, but I'm pretty sure it was with the bullies because I don't think I was invited over to our house until like we were playing football at that time. <laughs> I think yeah. I think you're right. I think I I think she invited me. You guys actually needed a sub. And so I think I went and I subbed one game. That was the first time I met you. But then I met you like two other times without realizing that you were the person that I had previously met. I don't remember. I don't know if you recall when I was at NYU, I coached Drew, who is Miwa's oh, yeah. cousin, right? <laughs> Your wife's cousin. Yes. And so you guys came to a game and then I met you again after the game and we were talking and I was just like, who is this guy? Like, why is he so familiar? Like, I swear I've met them before. And then I think after that, I came to your place. You guys had a barbecue and I came and we were chatting again. And I feel like that was actually when I was like, how do I know them? And I think Miwa was like, she looks so familiar. And then you guys were just like, no, I think she's just like a tall white girl. (laughs) (laughs) Or no, you were like, is she Drew's coach? And it was like, not all white people look the same, but it was actually, (laughs) it was actually me. I actually think it was a combination of the two of, of that and also I remember Drew Drew might have met Katie and she was like I think she was maybe telling us at that time like she looks like Coach Beck, but I'm not for sure. <laughs> and then I just remember Drew being over at our house and I think you came over when Drew and like Michaela and and it was a it was a third. I don't know who the third one was, but they were all over there and they're like coach Beck is going to be I was like I think your coach is going to be here and, <laughs> and sure enough you did show up hilarious so, those were always fun for me because you know I like when you know college athletes get in trouble like that you know and it's fun, fun times brings back memories fun memories so many memories did you get in trouble a lot Vincent um yeah yeah I did I so especially in in college I uh like I was pretty low key, but then, and I was doing really well, like my first year, two years on track. And then I pledged. It's like my, my track career just went downhill. So you were in a I fraternity. Track, yeah. Oh, yeah. I've just lost so much respect for you right now. <laughs> right, right. But it was a, it was a historic return. It's actually the, the oldest black fraternity in the, in the world. It's okay. All right, you've gained my respect um, back. So thank you, thank you. <laughs> so we uh, Alpha Phi Alpha is a real chapter, Indiana um, State University. But anyway, we uh, like when I pledged, my track career went downhill, but my social life went up. So mm. you know it was a good balance, but at the same time, I always like you know I kind of wish I had focused a little bit more on track. Instead, I just I, I got caught up, but it was fun. It made college so much more fun. Listen, we're all young and we have to make mistakes and learn from them. And some of us are just perfect in college and do really well and (laughs) don't have much of a social life. (laughs) And you went to Indiana State, yeah? Yes, yeah. Missouri Valley Conference. I actually went to Indiana State on Missouri Valley Conference, same conference as you. You went to, did you go to Iowa State or did you go to? First of all, Iowa State is not in the Missouri Valley Conference and you should know better. University of Northern Iowa. <laughs> University of Northern Iowa. UNI. There you go. Yes. The purple team. Gosh, I used to hate running against you guys in track because you guys were always actually really good. I was got. Uh, um, I was got their sports together. Yeah, I'll tell you that. They do, and you got your. Is it you? I think you guys have like an indoor, 
300 meter track, which used to have these amazing track meets back in the day. Oh yeah, um, we had because we had the that, dome. Mm-hmm. Those were really fun track meets. They were huge and like na- they got national recognition. Like a lot of the top indoor times were ran at that at that dome. But yeah, I actually went to Indiana State on thinking I was gonna play football because I I basically went to high school to for the most part for football. My school was a my high school was a really good football school, Bishop Chatard, and they once I finished playing, I got recruited by a decent amount of schools, but my grades were horrible. Um, I don't think mm. studying was you know a part of my daily activity in high school. <laughs> um, so after that, I just settled on Indiana State as a Prop 48 student athlete, which just means that you sit for a full year and lift weights like with a team or with other Prop 48 student athletes. Um, And then you come back in and you play and they monitor your grades and you can't pick a major to your second, I think to your second year in college. So it's like just all electives your first, your first year. But yeah, I did football and track my first year in college and then, or my second year and then kind of settled on track after a while. So where did you grow up? Did you grow up in Indiana? Yeah, I actually grew up in Indianapolis, Indiana, in the inner city. What was it like where you grew up, and what was your neighborhood like versus where you went to school? Were they similar? Were they different? What was your experience there? My neighborhood and all my education has been totally different, (laughs) kind of like polar opposites in a way. I grew up in a neighborhood called Hallville, which was what people always say, like, they they always were considered to be like a rough neighborhood, but I guess like when you're from an area, it's not bad for you so like you know I grew I was born and raised in the neighborhood I lived in the house my whole life I was always there so you know it never seemed like it was like a dangerous place for me it just felt like I was you know just amongst neighbors and and friends and kids and what happened happened I didn't think anything of it my education my mom always made education a very important part of my life she sacrificed a lot so I've always went to Catholic school pretty much from the point but I started going to school. You know, she put me in a Catholic school down the street from my house for a second. That was in the, it was in the neighborhood. So it was a little hood, I guess, at the time, but I don't even remember it truthfully. But then I went from there to a school called St. Christopher, um, where I was pretty much the only black child in my class. And then also the only, I think there were two of us. There was another girl named Desiree, which is odd that I remember her name, but she was like a year older than me. Okay. And me and her were the only two in the school at the time. And then I got held back in first grade, ended up going to St. Thomas, St. Thomas Aquinas, which was in like central Indianapolis. Our class was, I don't think they've had a class like ours since we left. Each class, each grade only held like 24 to 25 students. My class had a total of like nine students of color. So it was a lot of us. And I really do commend our principal because it's weird. Like, I used to think our principal was like, I used to just, I didn't like her at first, you know. And then, like, as you get older, you start having this appreciation for people. And, like, she really took, like, a huge risk. Like, you know, I remember having, like, two daughters that were biracial, that were gorgeous, too. I used to have a huge crush on her daughters that were probably, like, 15 years older than I was. <laughs> um, but... Like our class was just every other class had like it might have had six black kids or it might have had four black kids and some had like two black kids. And then you get our class where we have nine and we're all like eight of us are very, very tight knit. Like we're still really close. I know I can still call them and and talk to them. We all still communicate on social media for the most part. So it's really cool. Like that 
that part about it was was very cool. And then I get to high school, and it's almost the same situation where uh, my high school is predominantly predominantly white. We had about eight to thirteen percent black kids or kids of color for the most part. Most of us played sports. I would say that most of us were probably very like pretty good in sports too. But it was like it was just a it was a different environment, but it was also just an environment I was so used to navigating. I never thought it thought twice about it. Even to the point where I got to college, when I got to Indiana State. I was like, wow, this school has so many black people. Like, this is so amazing. And then my friends would be like, bro, this is like nothing. We're trying to figure out where all the black people are. Yeah, it was really weird. And then I'd be in class and like my class, I'd be like the only black person in class. But then like you'd be able to go to like your community or go to like your dorm or, you know, my frat brothers were black. So like I still had people that I would just feel super comfortable around at all times. Yeah. Um, so. And can I ask you this, when you were going to school and you did notice that there aren't a lot of Black people, was it a typical thing for you to really seek out other Black people? Did you feel that you related more to them? It's almost like a, I guess in a weird way, like an at-home feeling. I just felt so comfortable. So my, I think it's just, it's also different because I I always tell people I, I was raised in a beauty salon. My mom did hair. She's only done black hair. And then I went to Catholic school and also came out a straight black man, which I think <laughs> is like kind of a bit like of a miracle. crazy in a way. Just yeah. Be, yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> even I think my dad thinks it's a miracle probably at the same time. <laughs> like, you know, I just, I've always felt very comfortable just around my race, living wise, working wise, even, you know, just for the most part, everything. But it is, it's just like a comfortable feeling no matter what the case is. Uh, it's just, uh, I feel like I always even try to make it a point to make sure that other people feel comfortable around any other person of color. Like I just try to make that mm. a thing like to where like, yo, they're, we're just people. Like that person over there is just like me. They probably have 90% of the same qualities that I have in terms of like how they went to school and where they're from and how they're living. Like it's, it's interesting you say that though, because you walk into a group and you feel more comfortable seeking out your race, right? But then you also say that you do your part to make other people feel comfortable. You want to make sure white people are comfortable around you. I just uh, want to make sure I'm like clear on what you're saying. Thing. Yeah, no, and that like, <laughs> yeah. I, I think that's like such a sucky thing that you have to carry that burden and responsibility of you're trying to make yourself feel comfortable, but you're also making those around you feel comfortable. And I think, I think that's really cool. And I think that's a special thing. And it's frustrating to me to hear things like that uh, because I don't, I don't think it should be any person to like make other people feel comfortable in their presence. I think that's the case all the time, though, with like just when you are when you're at work and you are the only black person in your office or only person of color in your office or in an environment. And then another person of color comes, you know, you want to make sure that they feel accepted, just as accepted as you are. So like I'm, I feel like I'm always trying to like reach out to them, whether I'm working directly with that person or their client, whatever it is, like it's like an inherited thing to just you. Like it does suck, like you're saying, because it's like you have to be, I'm sure you probably heard, but like, I feel like as black people, like we feel like we have to be two different people at, at all times. Like, yeah, totally. We call it code switch uh, in a way. 
Yeah. Uh, so it's like you can be this way around your real friends and then like in your corporate environment you got to be like this way um then you got like it's you just have to be certain ways around so many different people like you can't just truly be yourself to a point where i honestly don't even know who myself is at times who would i be like which which per, which version of vincent you're only you? allowed to be real vincent around me okay i don't want no fake <laughs> no yeah. fake vincent i don't want that <laughs> Right. No white people approved Vincent is what I'm saying. You be- got you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I only surround myself with real people. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. I also want to talk a little bit about sports. That's something you and I have a lot in common. You grew up playing sports. And I've always felt, and I know a lot of people say this too, like sports are a really great equalizer, I think. Like I said, I've been an athlete all of my life. And when it comes to being on like the court or the field, I don't think anybody cares about anything but you being their teammate and like whether you're going to catch the ball that you throw their direction. What are your thoughts on that? Sports is complicated to me because I do think it it is like a great equalizer for a moment, right? Like there's always politics and stuff. Like I still think there's politics in terms of sports, like with kids and, you know, their behavior mm-hmm. or whether they're, you know, who their families are. Like my school had like a lot of wealthy people, mainly wealthy, wealthy white people for the most part. I know for a fact, I went to high school for the most part, paying very little money. Um, Like my mom, I think she only had to pay like around, you can bleep this part out, but I think it's like around $400 a year for me to go to high school because we had a private donor that, Mm. you know, just made sure that we were, we were fine. Whereas my middle school, my grade school and middle school is like $5,000 a year. Yeah. So she, she actually put up our house for me to go to grade school. And then you get to high school and it's oh like, you know, your kid's an athlete. We're going to make sure he gets here. And in a way, like it worked out because, you know, I got to college. I also didn't have like any crazy injuries in high school or anything like that. The school got what they wanted. You know, we won two, two state championships in football while I was there. Went to state three out of my four years in track and then regional champs or sectional champs in basketball. Like it was like they, everybody got like, you know, their, their fair share of it, but at the same time, like, you know, like, there's other people that didn't get an opportunity solely because of just who they are. Mm-hmm. And that's not only, like, just Black people. I think that's also across the board sometimes, when, especially when it comes to sports and, like, when your school is filled with people that are somewhat wealthy, just because you know that there's so much politics behind it and you see people, like, sitting on the bench and they can't do anything um, until we get a lead by, like, 35 points in football or basketball. But at the same time, it's like, I have certain... You know, we would play certain teams in basketball, right? Where, yes, it was <laughs> we play the all-black team, and I play the whole game. And then, and this is only in basketball, and then we play, like, the white team, and I play, like, a quarter <laughs> oh, total geez. combined of, like, a quarter in the game. Yeah. But it's mainly because, like, people would fear those, you know, our players sometimes would fear, they would fear, like, black players. They just mm-hmm. would. And you would see it. And even if we come out with the win, usually we would come out with a loss in basketball, just to be honest, just because black people are pretty, pretty athletic. Right? <laughs> <You> know, <it's... laughs> I don't want to be the white person to say black people are better, but like, I feel like black people are better. At certain sports, just like, <laughs> I don't know. Like, I don't really know what to say. Like, it just, I don't know. It just, it is. Well, I think I don't know what the reasoning is. I think genetically speaking, they tend to be more athletic, but also I think the struggle that Black people have in their DNA just leads them to be um, a little tougher than a lot of white people. 
I think. Well, and it's also an outlet. Like, it's an outlet yeah. to kind of, like, just express who you are. So, like, usually in basketball and football and all these, like, in, in, like any sport that most, most Black people play, like, I think those are true outlets for us to just be who we are without anybody, like, caring how we, like, we're not judged by, like, how we dress, how we look, mm. how we talk. You're just, you're just expressing who you are by, like, the, the hard-earned work that you put in. Yeah. And nobody, like, everybody sees that on display. The problem with sports is that once you finish playing for a school or for a university, whatever it is, it's almost like if you're not, like, a professional athlete or anything of that nature, and, and this is like, kind of been the thing that I've been noticing just in general, is, like, you're a kid, like, you're a star running back or a star athlete at a university, and everybody loves you, but as soon as you graduate, now you're a threat. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And that's the weird part about it because they've always, you've always dressed this way. You've always talked this way when you were in college and, and whatever. But then all, as soon as you graduate now, now people are worried about you. That's the weird part about sports to me. And I still haven't like cracked the code on it yet, but that's just what I think about a lot. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. What has your experience been as a kid and also as an adult? Like what's your experience been with law enforcement? Have you ever been arrested or pulled over or anything like that? For me, like, I've never had the horrible, horrible, horrible experiences, like, with law enforcement. I've had friends who've had them before. You know, I've had white cops, black cops, Asian cops for the most part. They're usually pretty respectful in a way. The only, and it's weird because I, I'll, I'll give you a couple stories. There was one story in Indiana. <laughs> I remember getting pulled over. I used to speed all the time in grades, or not in grades, we're going to say, in high school and college. <laughs> You should be pulled over. Child. So I would speed a lot. And I remember getting a ticket one time, like, and the guy knew who I was from playing sports or whatever. He, uh, from playing football, he had me come sit in the passenger side of his police car. He like had a full blown conversation with me. Was super nice, sweet. And then he still gives me a ticket. (laughs) I was like, some shit. (laughs) Just straight up gave me a ticket. Like, it was like, I thought we just had a good time here. Like, you can give me a warning. Like, you just talked to me for a half an hour. And you, wasted you still my gave time. me a freaking ticket. Yeah, that's exactly it. And then there was, so this, there's a story that I always tell with Lowe. And it, well, I think this is the time with Lowe. Because Lowe had never been pulled over in a, in, by a police officer ever until she met me. Oh. Um, and she always called her driving while black. So, like, sometimes she would be driving, sometimes I would be driving, and I think we got pulled over three times total within the course of a year, and she never even had a ticket before. So, one time I was driving, I used to have an all-black Pontiac Grand Prix with 20% tint, which are legal in New York City. Um, 20% tint? Okay, what is the max tint that you can have? In New York, I believe it's 20%, but in, like, Indiana, I believe you can have 5%, which are almost impossible to see mm. inside it's, it's horrible we were somewhere in the city uh, we get pulled over the police officer basically has me turn off the car roll down all the windows and he's saying this all on the loudspeaker roll down the windows place both of my hands on the steering wheel and face forward and me and Laura just like you know what is this like what's going on like I never thought anything of it like you know I've, I've been pulled over so many times and thank god like nothing had ever nothing crazy had ever happened but um i just remember him telling me to reach over and well he told me i have to get my license registration so i reach over and i asked him if i could reach over and open up my glove compartment of course i was i was a single man at this time 
Um, and I reach over, open my glove compartment, and all these condoms just fall out. <laughs> and Lowe's, like, in the passenger seat, and the, the police officer on her side is, like, shining his light on the wrappers, and there's just, like, light going oh, everywhere, no. like, gold sparkles going everywhere. I'm, like, embarrassed as shit. Lowe's, like, trying not to crack up laughing in her head. I can just like, see Loanne right now. <laughs> she she makes me repeat the story all the time. Like, oh, all the time. It was, it's, it was really embarrassing. But, like, that was, like, the worst thing that ever happened. But at the same time, it just seems that's also, like, a, a situation that can go terribly wrong because I got right. pulled over because either my taillight was out or my license plate, the cover was covering up Indiana. And they didn't want that to be covered up. It was just a lot for nothing. Yeah. You know, it didn't seem like it was, it didn't seem like it was worth all that, but that's just me. So, you know, maybe I'm wrong, but it just seemed like that was a whole lot for a taillight or a license plate cover. When you were younger, did your parents ever have to sit you down and kind of talk to you about how you should behave when, if you're pulled over or in dealing with the cops? Like, what was that? Did you ever have any talks like that with your parents? Yeah, my mom frequently, like, just, you know, she kind of just instilled with me, just be very respectful with, with law enforcement. She never had to tell me, like, say yes, sir, or nurse, no, sir, or anything like that, but just be respectful, consistently be respectful, and just try not to do wrong. And that kind of was, like, my fear all through high school. Like, I wasn't, like, the partier in high school or anything like that. Like, I didn't drink until I got to college because she had, like, just put so much fear in me that if I, if I got pulled over, you know, anything could go terribly wrong. But that's all it was. It was simply just be respectful, be very respectful. Yeah. Um, be as respectful as possible. And I didn't even have, I never had a cell phone in high school either. So that cell phones, we didn't have cell phones in high school. <laughs> no. No. I think I got a cell phone maybe my senior year of high school. But I was, I, I was, my I'm younger than you. So you're a little old. You, you are whatever <laughs> only a few years I think do you think well first of all do you and me all want to have kids someday funny you should ask so we are currently coming up on six months oh that's so exciting <laughs> oh my gosh congratulations thank but you also why thank have you. you not told me this how dare you <laughs> I told you live on a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> We're not live. I mean, you and I are live, but people listening to this are listening to this a few days later. So now you're going to be bringing in a baby boy or a baby girl to the world, which is very exciting. What are your thoughts as a black father bringing in a black son or a black daughter? And do you have fears? I, I know you're excited and you should be. Um, what are some fears you might have or what are some thoughts you might have? So I'm very excited. I'm also terrified at the same time. I don't <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's uh, it's a lot to think about. Like everything hasn't fully hit me. Um, it's been like I've always known that I've wanted to be a father. And I've known that since like college that I want to be a father. You're going to be a great father. And Miwa mm-hmm. is going to be a great mom. You guys are going to be awesome parents. Like this is really exciting. I'm I'm terribly excited to say the least. With everything going on, it it does give me fear, but also gives me hope. Like this has been the first time that I felt really hopeful with like how everything is moving and the support that we're getting from people. 
you know, from from just other races in general. I think that that's incredible, but it still makes you fearful because I just feel like anything could happen um, at any time. I don't I it's it's kind of hard to answer, I guess. Like I'm trying to answer it the best way I can, but no, it's okay. I guess like terrified for all of it is is like the best answer, but also excited for all of it as well. I don't know. It's it's weird to answer that one. I mean, yeah, no, don't don't apologize. It's a I think it's a tough question. And just bringing a child into this world right now in general is a challenge in itself. But I think with people like you and Miwa being parents, I think that's a good start. You guys are really good people. You're going to be great parents. I know you're going to love that baby so much. And you're going to raise him or her to be a really good human being, which is what we need in this world. And that's really yeah. exciting. Yeah, we were, it's it's funny too, like even we were thinking about moving from our place in Brooklyn for a while because we were going to um, think about moving to like a three bedroom with her, her best friend, Jess. Like we couldn't really decide on the location because I told, like I was really adamant about making sure that for the beginning stages of our child's life, like, I, I just want our child to be around as many people, particularly of color, as we could get them around. Like me was black and Korean, I'm black. Asians typically have very strong genes. Uh, <laughs> so, like, but like, I'm like, I, I just want our child is in the eyes of everyone is going to be a black child. And, you know, even to me, like our child is going to be a black child. I want our child to feel comfortable in any environment, but in particularly in their own environment, in their environment around like their people. Yeah. So, and our neighborhood is like that. Like our neighborhood is a very black neighborhood. It's all like mainly black homeowners that live here. Like my landlord is black. Across the way is black. It's just a really good close knit neighborhood. And I just wanted that to be like in the beginning stages of their life. Yeah. Yeah. It's good to have that community. Yeah. Oh, that's so exciting. I wanted to ask you a little bit too about you being in the workplace and what has your experience been in the workplace? in terms of like racism or just in terms of implicit biases, you're a very successful person. You know, you are a senior project manager, which is amazing. It's a long time to get that. I, feel very I was going to say, I know you've worked really hard. I was like checking out your bio on LinkedIn and I was like, I didn't know this about Vincent. Like this guy has like been doing all this stuff. This is great. It's been a fun ride. It's weird. Like this is, so the workplace is where I feel like I've, personally like experience like the most systemic racism as good as my company was that moved me here to Brooklyn I was also just a number two then I never was once like I stayed at that company for seven years and this is also my fault to an extent like I stayed somewhere that I wasn't happy for seven years and never was promoted one time Mm. like ever not even looked at for a promotion, like, you know, where I would be, I'd be kept out of meetings for portions of the project that had to belong to me. I remember there was one point in time where this, this actually happened at Barclay Center. I was the only black person on our team at all at Barclay Center for, for the GC. Wow. And we were in a meeting, like in a coordination meeting, and I had notes and a contractor had told me a date that he had a delivery. And I wrote down the date and then he missed his delivery and tried to blame it on me. And then he told like one of our managers, my manager at the time, and he told my manager to take my notebook and look at my notebook and see what I wrote down. And I was just like, 
And not only that, he did it. And I also get like, I allowed it. I gave him my notebook. Oh. And he like looks in my notebook. And I'm like, bro, this is like, and of course I'm like, at, I'm like 27, 28 then probably. I'm just like, I can't believe that he didn't just take my word. He also took my, he took my notebook and wanted Your to look and see notebook. which date. That's messed up. It was really weird. It was really weird. And it was, but that was like kind of all I knew at that time, which was also ignorant upon my fault. Like that's my fault for keeping myself in that environment in a way, which I, you know, I didn't know anything else. No, I was going to um, say, I don't think you can blame yourself for something like that. Yeah, and historically, like, you know, you're, the way my parents worked, you know, my mom has been like a FedEx for 20 plus years, right? I think like 27. I think, she, I feel like she's been there for as long as she's been broke before she was um, gave birth to my little brother. 27 years, she's been at FedEx. You know, they teach you to like get in, to get in with the company, you stay with them, you grow with them, you stay with that company for 40, 50 years, yeah. um, and then you leave, you know, you retire. So of course, that's like what I'm thinking. And that was kind of my mindset until I got to Brooklyn. Mm. Um, and granted, this happened in Brooklyn, but that's when I started meeting people of all different races going through different trials at work, really putting a true stamp on like, I'm going to be happy at my work environment. And it took a while for me to figure that out. Um, and it wasn't even at my company. It wasn't like I left. They let me go. They let me go because I didn't want to move to another city. And Meeble was the main reason of that because I found, you know, I'd never been in a relationship in the same city or found a girlfriend on my own without like anybody's input. Like this is like me growing up, you know, for the first time really without any outside influence. Yeah. Like, you know, I wanted to really hold on to this relationship. Um, and I knew I wouldn't be able to do that if I moved away. Mm. So stayed here and then once they let me go that's when I feel like I really grew up in New York like I realized you know what my true path should be how to navigate the workforce how to how to somewhat even negotiate like my salary in a way and then also like how to make sure I'm like comfortable in certain environments so I've always been once I left that company I went to other companies one was like some of them were, like mom pop shops that weren't diverse at all it was just because i needed a paycheck at that mm, time yeah um but then like once i got like with some bigger companies like a Rose, which was really diverse but you know at the bottom it's like at the top there they're not at all and then i went to shaman which was also really diverse in the middle and at the bottom but not at the top but also i just felt comfortable in those environments like i had more people of color more people like just a similar age that I could communicate with. So I thought that was really cool. And then I got to JLL. JLL is like historically like a brokers or brokerage company for the most part. And brokerage is very white. Like it, mm. you know, yeah. You there's no if, ands, or buts about it. You see it, it's right there in front of your face. It's it's right there. But my group, which is the project management group, PDS, is so diverse in terms of like the middle management, um, the lower tier management as well, but their upper management is not. Um, and that's been something that I've been very vocal about. But at the same time, it's also been like the first time I've been in a company where I feel like it's been receptive. And it's also been receptive before people started feeling like, you know, before the, the movement got so big. Mm. Like they, were, they were very receptive then. They're very respe receptive now. 
and they understand like, yeah, we want people of color and upper management. You know, I don't feel comfortable going to basically just going to a white man and telling him about like issues that I'm having at work all the time. I want to come with somebody that I feel comfortable around. Yeah. Do you think that that's a level of trust as well? Like going to someone who's a white manager as opposed to a black manager? I mean, I know there's like a comfortability thing, but I would imagine that it's like tied to some trust in a way. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely think that because it's just, it's like, I feel like it's like, you know, going to like, like we, our company has like a decent amount of Jewish people and also the Jewish people are at higher levels too. So like you go to those, like they feel more comfortable going to their culture than, you know, going to somebody else. And I would feel, I, I totally understand them on that because I want, I would love to go to a black man or a black woman and tell them like about issues that I'm having, but I got to go through HR and HR really isn't there. Like, and historically, yeah. HR is only there to help the company out. They're not there to help the employee. Right. <laughs> so, you know, they're like, how do we make sure we're not going to have a lawsuit? What do yep. we have to do? So it's just, it's like, I, I want to feel comfortable going to somebody. And that's the, that's the most difficult part about it. Yeah. It's kind of where I am on it. No, I feel you. And I, I think it's hard because it's like when people talk about, making workplaces more diverse it does end up being at the bottom and you're like but no we need it at the top because that's where the decisions are made and if you don't have any varying opinions and it's all the same thing all the time you don't have that different perspective and you don't see what's happening on the ground because you only see one side of it I think yeah no that's literally it that is one I think that's 100 percent and it's it's been really cool, like, kind of seeing, like, how receptive, like, our, our managing director has been. You know, we had a town hall, like, probably, like, two years ago. And there was a girl, there's a girl, Deborah, who I actually got hired at JLO. She came from Shaman. And she had all these, like, questions that she had written down, like, for the town hall. And I know they get these questions, like, you know, they, it's like, you know, any, most interviews or whatever, they give you the questions, so you have to plan for them in advance. Yeah. And her questions were very poignant and very, like, specific to race. How are we going to um, increase the diversity in our group? They kind of gave, like, runaround answers in a way. And then mm. every time I have to sit in the front row, like, especially when they're, like, calling me down to the front row, oh, like, no. this was, like, pre the meeting, pre the town hall. So I'm like, if you put me in the front row where I have to pay attention, of course, I'm going to ask a lot of questions. And they were like, yeah, we're making it, you know, we're, we're working very hard to get, you know, make our company very diverse. And I pretty much just asked, how? And then everybody was just stunned and nobody said anything. And then he's like, yeah, we don't, like, we haven't really done much. And I'm like, so how are we working to make the company diverse? And then it just got them, you know, they, it, that's when oh, I actually got you. them thinking, like, we're not doing anything. So then we started, you know, diversity committees and everything, which, which have been actually pretty cool. I'm not going to lie. They, they've Good. actually been very cool and have worked. Um, they're starting to generate some buzz, but I get it. it. Certain things don't happen overnight. Certain things take some time. So. Yeah. No, but that's awesome that you, I mean, first of all, it's awesome that you even said that. Right. And I, I think that's a tough thing to do to sit there in the front row as a black man in this company and be like, okay, but how are you going to do that? Because what if you never asked that question? Would they really make the effort to 
actually do something or would they just run their mouths as they did and be like, well, we're working to do this. And are you though? <laughs> like, how are you doing this? Yeah. So good for you for speaking up. This has been the best company that I've worked for like ever, like in terms of flexibility, in terms of letting me like rock and be myself. They still like, they'll even joke about the way I dress at times. Like before the pandemic, I would show up sometimes with like jeans and a t-shirt on like on a Wednesday and like, oh, t-shirt Wednesdays, huh? <laughs> but, you know, they're just, they're, other people have done it at the same time. Like it's, it's the most, it's the most comfortable I've ever felt at a company that I don't own or run. Yeah. Um, Vincent, okay. I have one more question for you. It's a two question. I don't want to assume anything. First of all, do you believe that white privilege exists? I do. I do. Um, so then so that's that being, part of the question. <laughs> that being said, that's the first part. Again, I don't want to make assumptions. Uh, I just want to hear it from your mouth. What would you say to people who say white privilege doesn't exist? So I have a little story about it. Um, I think there's, there's a lot of different layers to it. I experienced it the most, like when I was the most, if you want to call it, quote unquote, woke um, when I got to New York, um, when I was in New York, and well, I still am in New York. But I, before Uber, the only thing you had to get around when the subways were out was either your feet or cabs. Mm. And 90% of the time, you were not getting picked up by a yellow cab if you were black or brown, um, no matter where you were. I remember me and me, we used to go on dates, um, and we still go on dates. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, we would go, like, we'd be on dates, and it'd be late, you know, after we just got done eating. And it's like 10 o'clock at night, and we're just trying to get back to Brooklyn as fast as possible without taking the train. Cab would go by, cab after cab after cab with the lights on saying they're available with me with my hand up. Uh, Lo used to tease me and tell me I should wear my, I should have my Starbucks cup in my hand to, <laughs> to, to help me out. Um, even like at times where I would like try to step away from me, uh, like, you know, 15, 20 feet away, let her hail the cab for you. And then, you know, we get close enough to where they stop and then she's about to go open the door and they pull away when I get there. Mm. But it's, Things of that, there's another point. I remember I was with my, my friend, Marty. Marty, I've known Marty since, you know Marty. Marty and Lauren. I Maybe don't. you don't. Maybe only Katie knows know. Marty. Yeah, I don't know Marty. Maybe. They were at the wedding, and I remember we, me and him were at a party one day, and we had to get to Brooklyn. I tried to get a cab. Couldn't get one. Marty goes up, raises his hand, and holds the door for me. He gets the cab right away, holds the door for me, and he's like, Hey, he's going to Brooklyn and then just hit huh. the cab and you know we shut the door wow. and we're off and I'm just like wow that's so amazing but the one thing that wow. Marty understood that I loved and he still understands like Marty has always known that I'm black and he's always mm -hmm. respected me for like he's respecting my blackness or you yeah. know just respecting me being black as a black man um, just like I respected him as a white man like we just he knows the situation like of what it is he doesn't treat me yeah. Bad by any means. I don't treat him any other way. Like I treat him as Marty. He treats me as Vincent. It's like he knew, he just understood at that time that I would never get a cab at that moment in at that moment in time unless he stepped in to help. Yeah. Nothing's going to change in our society today unless other people step in to help. 
Um, mm. If you don't step in and you're content with everything being the exact same as what it is, then it's going to stay that way. But if you actually believe that there is something worth fighting for and there, that there should be a difference in what, than how this world is right now, you have to step in. That's all I have to say. We're going to end on that because that's the perfect thing to end on, I think, Vincent. Very well said. Vincent, thank you so much for being on the show. I hope you're not excited. No, this was fun. <laughs> that no, was great. It's really fun. Yeah, seriously. Thank you for doing this. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Lizzie. Seriously. Thanks for having me. Of course. Uh, thank you all listeners for listening. If you would like, follow me on social media. I'm on Facebook and Instagram. Lizzie Beck, L-A-Z-Z-I-E-B-O-E-C-K. If you would like to follow Vincent. Vincent, what are your social media handles? Um, my Instagram is just bmason7. I am private, so if I don't like you, I may not accept you. That's how it should be. <laughs> but, That's why uh, we get along. Yeah, I'm def- <laughs> <laughs> definitely private. Uh, and then Facebook is just Vincent Mason. I'm not big on social media, so... Me neither. Honestly, I'm only on it so that people know that this podcast is happening at this point. That's it, and we'll see you all next week.